Well, you can turn there if, if, uh, if you haven't yet. It's a long section, so we're going to move through it at a good pace. Um, and it'll be helpful, as it always is, but it'll be helpful today to follow along just to catch the flow of things. Um, so chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, verse 1 um, will, be our, will be our portion of study. And as we come to this text, it's helpful to remember uh, a main and central concern of the book of Samuel. And that central concern uh, certainly revolves around providing a, a kind of history record of, of Israel as a people. Because in Samuel, we have the account of Israel as a people shifting from this uh, kind of tribal structure to a monarchy. They're going to have a king soon. Uh, so one concern of this book is to expound that history for the reader. But more importantly... The book of Samuel especially reveals the character and nature of God and how he engages with his people. And not not just how God engages with his people, but how God reveals himself and interacts with the Israelites, even though they have so often uh, acted in ways that are contrary to him. Uh, even reflecting on, the, on this in our, in our interpersonal relationships is just an interesting thing to think about. It, it's one thing, isn't it, to spend time with somebody, uh, to get to know them when all things are going well and everything is relatively smooth in the relationship and in your, in your lives respectively. But it's another thing entirely to get to know a person in the context of, of them being deeply wronged. Maybe even being deeply wronged by you in the course of, of that relationship that you're sharing together. There's a unique level of insight into what a person is really like based on how they respond uh, to, to a situation of being deeply and even repeatedly offended. You get enormous insight into the character and nature of that person. And then that's very much what's going on in the book of Samuel as the nature and character of God's own personhood is being revealed to his people. Uh, now offenses again of, of persistent and regular and long-standing now offenses against him. Uh, but because these aren't sunny days for Israel in terms of their relationship with God. We've talked about how, how Samuel set at the tail end of the time of the judges. And, and the, uh, the refrain all the way through that book is everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. They're ignoring God and His, and His law. They're ignoring Him and His instruction. And so at this time in Israel's history, they are, they are regularly rejecting God. They're dishonoring God. They're being irreverent toward the Lord. Um, and, and in that, a big question that must be asked is what will God be like in the midst of all these offenses against Him. Now, we're going to know something about the real nature and character of God based on how He responds to these people who are relationally, if we can just put it in relational terms, relationally acting so contrary to Him. What will this God be like? In fact, that's, that's not just a question for Israel during this time period, but that's a very important question Israel is going to need to ask in a few generations when they actually do find themselves in the context of exile. And it's probably during that time that the book of Samuel was completed and they could actually uh, start reading it corporately in their worship. But, but, but there will be that time when Israel goes into exile after they've turned to idols for, for so long, failed to trust in the Lord. And, and as the Lord said what happened, it does happen. They go into exile. They're, they're weeping there in the context of Assyrian exile, Babylonian exile. And the people of Israel would need to, to be able to answer this question. How is God going to interact to, with us? given the level of offenses uh, that, we have, that we have extended against him. They, they need to know what God is really like in the context of this kind of strife and ultimately in the context of their own rebellion and wickedness against him. And, and really the same is true for us as we relate to God. 
We're often aware of times uh, where we find ourselves at very low points spiritually. We know what it's like to be overrun by sin that tangles us up and, and disrupts our peaceful communion with God. We know what it's like to experience those things. We know guilt. We know the shame that can come when we, when we find ourselves uh, almost outside of ourselves watching us run back to the folly of our sinful ways when we know we shouldn't go those ways. But there we are running back to them again and, 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 and spurning the Lord's kindness to us again. How do we think about God in those circumstances? What's, what's He like when we're struggling with sin? Even to put it more accurately, what's He like when we're willingly engaging in sin that He's called us and empowered us to reject? It's, it's one of the most critical questions we can ask. And in a unique way, especially in chapters 4 to 7 of 1 Samuel, in a unique way, we have these narrative accounts that give us a, a wonderful and, and ultimately very uh, good news-centered answer to those kind of questions about God. I, I, I know I struggle with sin personally. You know you struggle with sin personally. We, we know this corporately. We know what it is to struggle with sin. We know what it is to experience God's extraordinary kindness and still fall short of the life that He's called us to live. And, and what these chapters are doing is that they're helping us know what it is to grasp the character and nature of God even when we've acted so offensively against Him. So, so back in chapter 4, we just think through this. In chapter 4, the people of Israel are sinning in so many ways by the time we get to the, to the beginning of chapter 4. And, and while we definitely saw the Lord's discipline coming heavily upon them, what do we ultimately see in chapter 4? Well, ultimately, the Lord reveals Himself as the one uh, who will take the climax of the people's curse. Through that imagery of the, of the ark being carried off into captivity, the presence of God itself going outside, God is taking the curse of Deuteronomy upon Himself. This is the Lord who will take punishment in the place of His sinful people. We learn that huge truth about the Lord in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, last week, we saw how the Lord, even though it might appear like He's defeated, He'll never be defeated. He's the God who absolutely triumphs. He triumphs over false gods. He triumphs over the attempted uh, manipulations and hypocrisies of people. He is the God who proves to be victoriously strong. That's chapter 5. We need to know that this Lord who's willing to take our sin and, 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 and victory, and then also the God who wins. He, he is the God of absolute victory. And then now we get into chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we have another narrative where we're helped to see God for who He really is, even in the context of His people's significant sin. In chapter 6, and we'll work this out as we go, but in chapter 6, we understand God to be the God of rising glory. He's the God of rising glory. So, so here we see uh, God again in, in full and victorious power. And then ultimately, in the end, He's exalted in a way that we might not otherwise expect. But in that unexpected rise, we find this to again be the God who extends extraordinary and unmerited kindness. And, and so as we consider this text this morning, we, we can be renewed in this truth of who God is. We can be encouraged by knowing Him in the context of the, of the pressure of a sinful relationship with His people. God's true character and nature is coming out. And we can, and we can just be encouraged by the, the revelation that's here with regard to, to, to God's personhood. So again, uh, we're going to focus on chapter 6, verse 1 uh, through 7, verse 1. Take the whole section under this heading, the Lord of rising glory. And we're actually going to break the narrative out by four sections as we go. Um, and we'll be able to spend more details on certain parts than others. But, but as you're looking at the text, uh, we're going to start in verses 1 to 6 as our first section, where we'll say uh, that the Lord cannot be held. 
That's what we have in verses 1 to 6. The Lord cannot be held. Maybe the Lord cannot be held down. I could put it that way. Um, so beginning there, when, when chapter 6 picks up, we remember where things left off last time in the end of chapter 5. So, so we're in the middle of this section of Samuel focused on the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant represented that unique presence of God among His people. That's something that we've talked about uh, at more length before. We won't go through all that again. But, but the main thing to remember is that the Ark of the Covenant was meant to be a symbol of God's presence and power with Israel. And in chapter 5, the Philistines uh, had previously defeated Israel in battle, and in the course of victory, the Philistines had then captured that ark, that representation of God's presence among His people. The Philistines had captured that and taken it to their own temple of their own chief deity, Dagon. So they'd brought it into their own temple as a kind of victory trophy. Uh, as the thinking would have gone, obviously the Philistines would assume our God must be more powerful than Israel's God because, because uh, we've beat them in victory, so, so Dagon's more powerful than Yahweh. We'll bring Yahweh in to be subservient now in our God's, in our God's temple. So the Ark of the Lord is now viewed as subservient to, to Dagon's statue. Uh, Yahweh's subjected to Dagon. That's how the thinking would have gone. But as we know, things didn't end up that way at all. Uh, instead of Yahweh being subjected to Dagon, the statue of Dagon ends up falling down in this bowed position, not once, but twice. And that second time he's down, uh, both his head and his hands are cut off. It's that universal symbol, not only of, of even worshipful submission, but actually, actually total battle victory. Head and, head and hands cut off. That God was defeated. So, so Dagon is in this position of total defeat after the ark shows up at his temple. And then everywhere the ark is taken in the realm of the Philistines after that, they start making the rounds of the five major cities. They don't get through all five uh, for, for obvious reasons, but they start making the rounds of all their major cities. And everywhere the ark goes, God's judgment is present. His hand is heavy upon the Philistines, like the text says. And so into these cities which the ark comes, a plague follows and death follows. And, and the Lord uh, proves himself to not be the one who's defeated, but instead he shows his triumphant power over all those who would try to defeat him. Which then brings us to the beginning of chapter 6. And in, chapter, in the beginning of chapter 6, we see the Lord can't be held as things start in a condition of, of basically a state of panic there with the people of, of, of the Philistine lands. The Philistines, they summon the priests, we read, and the diviners, and they plead. What should we do with this thing? Tell us how we can get this ark back to Israel. We don't want it anymore. That They've been ravaged by the, by the heavy hand of God for seven months, the text says, and all they want to do now is give the ark back. So that's where that question in verse 2 comes. They, they, they summon their spiritualists, these, these diviners, spiritual leaders in the land of the, of the Philistines. What should we do with the ark? Tell us how we can send it back to its place. There's this level of panic represented. No one wants to, to keep the war trophy anymore. Clearly, the, the war's been fought and Yahweh's won. And at this point, it's just a matter of cutting our losses. We want this thing gone. And, and you see the nature of their desperation reflected in, in, the, in the advice they get from their spiritual leaders. So in verse 2, the, these, these Philistine uh, spiritualists, they're, they're called. And whoever these priests and diviners are, we read how they are, they are very aware that guilt is present for the Philistines. No doubt about that. Uh, so, 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 so because of the effect of the ark of God among them, these diviners uh, make it clear that, that this deep sacrilege has been committed by the Philistines against the God of Israel. So, so the Philistines are directed to put together a guilt offering, first of all, if they're going to be sending the ark back. They need to put together a guilt offering. And that offering, as, as weird as it is as we read about it here, it seems to reflect the, the nature of the trouble that's come upon them. 
Um, so so they, they're supposed to create five golden tumors, which is gross. Um, but they create these five, because two, they've had tumors, so apparently they've also had autopsies, I don't know, but five golden tumors. Um, so that's the plagues they've been suffering from, and they're also uh, to create uh, these five golden mice, and the five corresponds to the five Philistine rulers over the five main Philistine cities. So it's a comprehensive uh, representation of the people there. Um, so, so they're supposed to do the tumor thing and the mice thing, uh, because apparently both the tumors and the mice have been destroying their land in verse 5. Which is, which is actually just an interesting thing to note. Because if you remember, we talked about it last time, Dagon was the grain god. And what's a nightmare if you're in the grain business? Mice. Right? So it's just another way that Yahweh's victory is being proved over Dagon. It's not just that the people are getting tumors. His statues toppled over and all chopped up. But there's mice everywhere in the, in the area of his sovereignty. Right? So, so it's, really a, it's really a great picture of Yahweh's victory. Um, so so there's, this, there's this guilt offering. The diviners say, if we're going to get rid of the ark, guilt offering needs to fit the offense. So we've we got to send it back in this way. Um, so there's this acknowledgement that, that there's been wrong done against the God of, of the Israelites. Guilt needs to be dealt with. And, and then as the Philistines are thinking through giving the ark back, it's not just a guilt problem that they're worried about, uh, but actually, and maybe more, more importantly, they're really concerned about God's power in general. This has become a problem for them. So, so verse 6, we have this other reference to the, to the Egyptians and Pharaoh situation, that Exodus reference. And, and if you remember back in chapter 4, when the, when the ark was first brought out by the Israelites and the Israelite war camp cheered before they fought with the Philistines, the Philistines remembered, oh, the, their God, don't forget, their God is the one who brought the, who brought the uh, Israelites out from Egypt and, and conquered Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And what did they do at that point with that little history lesson in their mind? Well, they thought, fight like men is what they said. We, we've got to get it together. We've got to fight. And they won in that, in that battle. They, they fought and they won. But now they're bringing up the same story. And what's the diviner's conclusion in verse 6? We need to fight like men. No, everything has changed for them. Why harden our hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaohs hardened theirs? In other words, why would we be so foolish as to think for a second time that we could stand against this God who did all that amazing, miraculous deliverance work back in Egypt? Think about that history lesson. Now look at where we are. And, and instead of just historical recall, these Philistines have, have extreme firsthand experience of the, of the power of the God of Israel, so much so that they recognize there's not one single arena in which Yahweh is not sovereign. It's amazing, which is interesting to note even in verse 5. You notice how the diviners say it? Give glory to Israel's God, and perhaps He will stop pressing what you, your gods, and your land. So, so stop pressing your bodies. You're all sick. The, the deities, which you think could have helped you, but obviously can't help you. And the world in which you live. I mean, what a statement about Yahweh's total and complete uh, sovereignty, weighty sovereignty over all of these things. That's a pretty widespread confession of, of Yahweh's power. You, your gods, and your land are all under this, this triumphant victory judgment of Yahweh. So, so let's not be stupid like Pharaoh and think we can win. That's what, that's what the diviners are saying. And so what do we do? Well, we've got to prepare this guilt offering because we violated God who reigns over everything, people, spiritual powers, the land we live in. The ark's got to go. We can't hold this God. In fact, he, they say he's literally crushing us in, in verse 5, which, which has a, a play on words in that verse. Uh, there with that word glory again. We've seen glory, uh, that word kavod in Hebrew, show up a whole bunch of times in this narrative. And here we have it again where, where, where 
glory or the weightiness of God is represented. Very literally, verse 5, the diviners say, give glory, so, so give weight to the God of Israel, and perhaps he will lighten his hand. You see, there's this, this play on words. The Lord is crushing us. We need to make this offering of guilt. We can't hold him. He's the one pushing us down. The Israelites are waving, or the, the Philistines are waving a white flag. To which we say something along the same lines of what we noted last week. The Lord wins. And, and we need this reminder again and again, apparently, because it keeps coming up in the Bible. The Lord wins. All the way through this narrative. That there is, there is ultimately, we're being shown here, there is ultimately no final source of power that can overcome or hold down the Lord. We, we just see it again. It's not like Israelite armies are fighting for the Lord here. He is supernaturally superintending all of these things that are going on just around, around this, this vessel, this Ark of the Covenant. He's doing His own work and He's proving Himself powerful. And we just need to be reminded of that. Whether, whether it be us or alternative spiritual powers or the world we live in, you, your God, your land, this is the Lord who proves himself in total supremacy and it is cosmically impossible to subjugate him in any way. It may seem like the, the changing laws of the land will tie God's hand. A new Supreme Court justice will be appointed or whatever. Maybe that will tie God's hand. It may seem that a larger cultural narrative of the day will finally leave the Lord muted in some way. It may seem that the damaging impact of, of grievous things done to us or grievous things done by us will have, have a kind of final word in our lives personally. But none of that is true. It's just not true. The Lord is the Lord of people, powers, and the world we live in. Give weight to Israel's God, and perhaps he will lighten his hand on you, your gods, and your land. We dare not harden our heart toward the God of this kind of victory power, but this is what he's proved himself to be, the God of total victory. So the Lord can't be held down. He can't be pressed down. Well, which then brings us to the, <laughs> to the second section of this narrative, where we move from the fact the Lord cannot be held in verses 1 to 6, to now see that the Lord proves his, I'm going to say supernatural, he proves his unnatural power. He proves his unnatural power in verses 7 to 12. Now, you keep an eye on, on those verses, but, but even in saying that, uh, this, this, the next thing the Lord does here, what does he do? He proves his power. Even in saying that, we, we have to wonder, why are we still talking about God's power? Why are we still doing this? I mean, are you, are you picking up the theme here? Even if we set aside all the events of chapter 5 with the whole Dagon falling, broken up, and the tumors and all that business, all that's enough to make God's power obvious. That's good. But then along with that, the Philistine diviners have just come and made this confession that it's God's heavy hand, sovereign over all things, you, your, your gods and your lands. And they've been talking all about the whole Pharaoh problem with his hard heart and God's power back in Exodus. So the Philistines presently in their experience and historically in their recollection, the power of God is just running all through this. So why in verses 7 to 12 are we talking about God proving his power again? Well, we're talking about it in this section, as we'll see, for the plain reason that even though the Lord has shown himself strong in multiple ways, the Philistines still would really, really, really prefer if this whole plague and Dagon falling over business was just a really big coincidence. Yes, the God of the Hebrews is really, really powerful. We're guilty before him and so on. We must make some kind of offering. We've got to get this ark out of here. Uh, but we'd still really, really, really like it if this was all a big misunderstanding and Yahweh wasn't actually behind any of it. We'd be so glad if this was just a big, unfortunate coincidence. So they devised this plan. We've got to return the ark to Israel. 
They put a plan together that, that actually still includes what we might call a, a, a sacred concern, maybe a pseudo-sacred concern for who the Lord is. In verse 7, they prepare a cart to carry the ark that's never been used and two milking carts that have never been yoked. So there's, there's reverence represented in that and that the people are using undefiled instruments, um, if you like, a never-before-used cart, animals that have never pulled a cart. Um, there's a modicum of reverence in that. But, but with this reverential concern, they're also conducting a test. They're putting the Lord to the test in verses 7 to 9. Just listen to verses 7 to 9. The Philistines' diviners are speaking. Now then, prepare one new cart and two milk cows that have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart. Okay, that sounds good. But take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, and put the gold objects that you're sending him as a guilt offering in a box beside the ark. Send it off and let it go its way. Then watch. If it goes up the road to its homeland toward Beth Shemesh, city in Israel, it is the Lord who's made this terrible trouble for us. However, if it doesn't, we will know that it was not His hand that punished us. It was just something that happened to us by chance. And wouldn't that be great to find out? The Philistines, in all their awareness of both personal guilt and Yahweh's glory. In fact, in this chapter, they finally call Him by name. They use the name Yahweh. And in all of their awareness of Yahweh's identity, glory, their own personal guilt in all of this, they still just really, really, really don't want to have to acknowledge it's Him. So, so they set up this test. And as one commentator puts it, they, they give the Lord really long odds. The Philistines are saying that, that the way we'll know if Yahweh's really behind this is we're going to take some cows who have calves that they're currently nursing and we'll, give the milking, we'll get these milking carts to pull, uh, to pull the cart and we're going to keep their hungry calves back locked up in the pen. Okay? And, and if the cows ignore their hungry offspring, which how unnatural would that ever be? Extremely unnatural. If the cows ignore their, unnatural off, uh, their, their, their hungry offspring... Um, then, then we're going to know it's the Lord if, if these cows take the, take the ark to, to Israel. We'll just follow along and watch what happens. So, so these are some pretty long and extremely unnatural odds against Yahweh. Take nursing cows away from their babies, expect them to walk in the opposite direction of their young. That's, that never is going to happen. Right? In fact, just to punctuate the long odds here, the Hebrew text actually uses the word sons for calves. Hebrew has a word for calves. It doesn't use the word for calves. It, used the words, it uses the word son for these for the calves, just to punctuate the intense natural intimacy and compulsion that the mother's mother cow would have to override if, if this is really going to happen and Yahweh is going to prove himself. It's quite the test. And guess what happens? Verse 12, the milking cows are really grumpy. They're grumpy. We read that they're lowing as they went. So they're very loud about they don't like this at all. They're upset. They're making noise. But we also read that they never strayed to the right or to the left all the way to the Israelite city of Bethshemesh. The Lord proves His supernatural. He proves His, his unnatural, supranatural power. He's the one who overcomes ways that are naturally built into the world to prove Himself victorious. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. But in this, it's just interesting to note that the, the human heart condition represented here with the Philistines. It's the condition, it's very interesting, and it's helpful just to see this play out in the narrative. It's the condition that will acknowledge the glory of God, and it will also even acknowledge guilt before this glorious God. They know His name, 
that this, this is the same human condition that with all of that will still look to construct every possible obstacle in order to stifle belief in this God, even though he proves and reproves his power. And, and this is helpful to see just in terms of discerning the human condition. It's not proof of God that we need. Paul makes it really clear in Romans 1, and a passage like this only underpins the truth. Romans 1, 18 and 19, people, by their unrighteousness, what do we do? Search for the truth, but we aren't able to find it? No, people by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. God has revealed himself in the world around us. He certainly revealed himself. He revealed himself specially to the Philistines here. But in our fallen humanity, we just don't want it to be him. So much so that we're willing to walk down the gloomy path of attributing the whole thing to chance. Isn't that interesting? They don't even go back to their pantheon of gods. You know, they're not even saying maybe Dagon is punishing us or anything like this. They're just willing to chalk the whole thing up to, up to chance there. And then this explains a lot. We, we, we may have had, or maybe we were continuing to have, those conversations where someone tells us that, you know, if we could just have the right argument or proof for God, they'd believe. We're just not reasoning it well enough for them. So they're not, they're not going to believe in God because of that. And of course, arguments and, and things of that nature are fine and, and have their place. They're important. But ultimately... The heart of humanity's problem, as it said, remains the problem of the human heart. We don't want to believe. We don't want it to be Yahweh. We look in all possible directions to make what is evidently God's work attributable to anything or anyone else. Even chance, dark chance, dark depressing chance is better in their minds than the God of Israel. So, so we're not surprised when we encounter this kind of resistance in our own lives. But we're also not ultimately despondent either. Because the Lord is the one who will again and again prove himself strong, whether we like it or not. Even, even, even against the natural order of this world, he proves his power. Which again, file that, we're going to come back to it. And you, and you see where all this is going. But we start putting this together. The Lord can't be held in verses 1 to 6. The Lord proves His supernatural, His unnatural power, once again in verses 7 to 12. And then we do move into verses 13 to 20, where the Lord is received with some joy, but mainly folly. The Lord's received with some joy, but mainly folly. So verse 13, if you look at that, uh, we'll, we'll pick up the pace here. Verse 13, the ark makes its journey to Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh uh, is, is a good Israelite destination to choose for the ark's return because it's a city of Levitical priests. Um, well, when the land of Canaan was parceled out for the people of God under Joshua, the Levites, or the priestly, the priestly tribe of, of Israel, they were assigned certain cities, and Beth Shemesh was one of those cities. You can read about that in Joshua 21. And, and so things seem uh, like they're going pretty well. Here we have the Ark of the Covenant being returned to the Phil, from, uh, from the Philistine land to Israel, which is obviously very exciting, and with that it's being returned to a Levitical city which is important because in, according to God's instructions about the ark, uh, only Levitical priests were permitted to care for it. And clearly, when things go wrong with the ark, we've seen the disaster that that, that, that produces. Um, so, so it's going to this Levite city. Things are looking good. Um, certainly, it can have a home here, or, or at least we think it can be received properly by the people of Israel as it shows up. Um, and, when, and when this cow-drawn cart uh, with the ark does show up, there, there is great joy like we'd expect in verse 13. So they're the people of the city, they're in the middle of harvesting wheat, they look up, which is just interesting that they're harvesting wheat, when in the other place the fields were being destroyed, it is just interesting to note that. All right, they're harvesting, they look up and see the ark coming, they're overjoyed to see it, the text says. They're happy, of course they are. Of course they're happy. 
Here's the symbol of God's presence among His people and it's being returned from its seven-month captivity in Philistine territory, apparently at, at, uh, by, this, by this cow cart thing that's coming down the road and in this unexpected way. Right? So the people are overjoyed, but, that, but that's not all. At least that's not a complete picture of, go, of what's going on. Uh, be, because, because while this seems joyful and proper, Levitical city, the people are happy, we do have a bit of a reason to be uneasy because while this is a Levite city, which at first gives us cause to think things might be okay, we also have to remember that this is a Levite city. And what was the condition of the priesthood during this time in Israel? Well, uh, so far just in Samuel, the three most important Levitical priests we've met, the three priests governing the worship of God centralized at Shiloh, have been Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, and how are things going for them? Chief priests, how are things going for them? Well, at this point, they're all dead, because as a result of their active desecration of God's sacrifices and their sexual infidelity and their passive permission for sin, God judged them and killed them. The priesthood in Israel from top down what was an immoral, irreverent, blasphemous disaster. So the ark comes into a priestly city. And it's received with what appears to be joy, but it, but it actually doesn't really surprise us to read that things turn south really quickly. Verse 14 the people of Beth Shemesh, they embrace the ark, they place it on the rock, the sacrificial uh, ceremonies performed, all of these things. The Philistine leaders, they return home, they've, they've seen the ark to the city, okay, it must be Yahweh. We don't really hear much more about what they think about that, they go back home. But then comes more judgment, verse 19. God struck down the people of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 persons. Now, there's a little bit of a question in the Hebrew text here. It may be 70 persons, it may be 50,070 it's a little bit hard to tell. Probably this town isn't big enough for 50,000. There's some textual wondering there. But it's a lot. It's a lot for the size of the town is what's being communicated. The people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. The people of Beth Shemesh asked, who's able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom should the ark go from here? Now, the details of what exactly is going on here is a little bit hard to sort out. Uh, the, actually, the Hebrew more precisely reads that they looked not inside the ark, but they looked on the ark, or they looked, they looked at the ark, is, is what, it's what's happening. And so God could have brought judgment upon them just for that. The ark was supposed to remain covered. These were Levitical priests they should have known. So maybe it came, and instead of immediately covering it, uh, they immediately did other things, like, for example, offer female cows as sacrifices, which is not uh, according to Levitical law. They should have been male, all these other things that they've done done in this situation they didn't cover the ark that could be what's going on so they're staring at it and and as a result God judges them just for disregarding his law again um, alternatively the Hebrew expression look on it's also a, a Hebraic expression translated in other places like Psalm 22 where it reads gloat over it means to gloat over kind of a kind of a na 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 sort of thing right if this is the case the people of Beth Shemesh are gloating over the fact that the, that this ark has been returned by the Philistines. It's this arrogant posture uh, re reflected here. You know, of course the ark comes back to us. Of course the ark is ours. And a, kind of that same arrogant posture that we encountered when they brought it out to begin with in chapter 4 before all this disaster took place. We don't know which, which, which of these it might be. All we do know is that the main problem exists of, of treating the ark without the humble, obedient reverence toward God, repentant reverence toward God that they should have, and instead that they treat it in some kind of profane way. So, so the city of Israelite priests, what happens? Well, they actually prove to be no better than the Philistines. Right? And God's judgment comes. A whole bunch more people die because God will not be mocked. 
And then this town of priests basically ends up asking the same question that the Philistines asked back at the beginning of the chapter. To whom shall, where shall the ark go from here? Philistines had the same question. How do we get this thing out of here? We need it gone. It can't be here. We're all dying. And here's the amazing answer. Where shall it go? Ultimately, in verse 21, the people send messengers to the residents of Kiriath-Jerim and ask them to come down and get the ark. Come down and get the ark. Geographically, they were higher. So they had to come down to, uh, to, to the city. But don't let that slip by you as nothing. So chapter 7, verse 1, the people of Kiriath-Jerim came for the ark of the Lord and took it to Abinadab's house on the hill. And they set apart this individual by the name of Eleazar to care for it. And as, and as verse 2 of chapter 7 tells us, which we didn't read, but it actually stays there for 20 years. It stays there until King David comes to get it in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It stays there a lot. Things are peaceful when the presence of God is in Kiriath-Jerim. Nobody's dying for the first time in quite a while. Now, this is a world of amazing truth here. In a million years, we would never expect the ark of the Lord. We would never expect the manifestation of God's presence among His people to be kept up at Kiriath-Jerim. We would never expect that. For us, for us, names of towns and places in the Bible, they all kind of start to mush together, don't they? I mean, it's, it's hard to sort out what, why they matter, but, but, this, but this really matters. Because while, while being a city in Israel, Kiriath-Jerim was not, uh, not only not a Levitical city, so there's no Levitical priests there, Kiriath-Jerim wasn't even a city of Israelites. It was a city of Gibeonites. If you want to... Do this for homework. You can go back and read Joshua chapter 9. But, but, but the Gibeonites were a group that lived in Canaan during the time the people of Israel were conquering the land, and they got really sneaky. And when Joshua was moving Israel through the land, uh, decimating everyone who lived there, the, the Gibeons tricked Joshua into making this treaty with them, if you remember that story, and letting them live. They, they were a crafty, shifty group of people. But because the, the treaty had been made, they were allowed to live as foreigners in the land of Israel. Okay. In fact, just to punctuate this, the name of their town had to be changed. You can read about this in Joshua um, 15, verse 60, I think. I don't remember. You can look it up. But, but Kiriath Jerem's original name was, uh, yeah, Joshua 15, verse 60. Its original name was Kiriath Baal. Kiriath means city. So Kiriath Jerem is nice, city of forests. Kiriath Baal, the city of Baal, who happened to remember to be Dagon's son. In the, in the pantheon of, of Philistine gods. Okay, so, so, so do you see what's happening here? The Lord, the Lord can't be held down. The Lord proves His supernatural power. The Lord is received with, with moderate joy, but mostly irreverence and folly among the people who should have known Him. And ultimately, you just, you just notice the references of going up in these last verses. The people come down for the ark. The ark goes up to the house on the hill in the town of the Gibeonites. Ultimately, what do we have but the glory of the Lord rising among foreigners in Baal town? So you, see, you see what's being put together for us. This is, this is the way the Lord works. That there's no power that can hold Him down. He proves His unnatural, supernatural power in the face of all odds. He's restored only to be treated by, ir irreverently by people who should have known Him. And His glory rises, what? His glory rises among the Gentiles. This is the way the Lord works. And we need to have eyes to see it because it's preparing us to make sense of the much greater day and, 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 and bringing us a much greater hope that ultimately climaxes in, what, in the way God reveals Himself in Jesus Christ, isn't it? I mean, you feel it all the way through, this tension building all the way through the narrative. We know the direction this is taking us. 
There's the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross, having finished his work. He breathes his last, victorious over sin, Satan, the dagons, and the curse. Jesus wins at the cross. He dies. But what? Death can't hold him. Jesus proves victorious over the natural realm of dying and staying dead. He proves victorious. In fact, he proves not only unnaturally victorious over death, those long odds against Jesus, but he rises only to have the leaders of the people who should have known him, who should have embraced him, who should have seen him for who he is, totally reject him so much so that, they, that, they, that they're getting after Peter for preaching about the resurrection in, in the book of Acts. And then what happens? Well, the glory of the Lord rises among the Gentiles. Isn't that the whole book of Acts? This fellow Cornelius is, is, is being filled with the Holy Spirit. What in the world is going on with this? This Gentile God-fearer. Right? The glory of the Lord rises among the Gentiles. Uh, and, and in this, we have this wonderful picture, ultimately, of how the Lord, uh, the Lord works. The glory of Israel proves to be the glory of Jesus Christ for people who don't, by all accounts, belong to God's people, but who instead are ultimately just foreigners from Baaltown. But, but you see, this is who God is. He, he's the God of the resurrection. And he's the God who will dwell among those who we least expect. He dwell among those who by all accounts seem to never deserve that at all. And this is where the encouragement comes. The God of this kind of power is the one who rises to dwell with the undeserving. He rises to dwell with those who would otherwise never seem to belong. The Lord Jesus calls people like us. He calls people like our neighbors to see him in his rising glory and find rest in his presence. 20 years, the ark was there and there was peace. This is who God is. He's holy and high. He won't be mocked. But he will also not leave those who are far, far gone from the blessing of his presence. He will not leave them alone, but he goes and dwells with them. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel, and it's a wonderful picture that the book of Samuel is painting for us, not least of all so that we're prepared to recognize the climax of all this in the person and work of Jesus Christ when it comes. And so we can take great comfort in all this truth. This is the Lord who dwells with undeserving people, and we know that. We know that because this is the Lord who has put his own spirit in us. He dwells with us, though we don't deserve it. Because of his kindness, we've been purified and have now become the dwelling place of God himself, which is glorious. So we're thankful to God for his word. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do pray that this would be an encouragement to our hearts to see how you act, to see your revealed ways. Uh, your truth uh, stands firm. Your, your ways always prevail. And your power ultimately results in such extraordinary mercy. Oh Lord, we pray that we would be able to apprehend uh, the significance of that and be, and be moved by it and compelled by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.